I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. Spaghetti sucks. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I said it. Previously on the Sporkful's Mission Impossible. We are embarking on the most ambitious project in Sporkful history. We are going to set out to invent a new pasta shape. I think this is a fascinating project, and I think it's going to be so much harder than you imagine it to be. I think pasta is just fine. I'm not going to encourage anybody to invent a new pasta shape. Have you met with a pasta engineer yet? What do you like eating? Are you thinking of a long shape or a short shape? I haven't gotten that far. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Welcome to part two of Mission Impossible, my quest to invent a new pasta shape, actually get it made, and actually sell it. If you haven't heard part one, please start there. Okay, let's get into it. After my trip to North Dakota and my deep dive into the encyclopedia of pasta, I have a new assignment. It comes from my pasta fairy godmother, Evan Kleiman, host of the public radio show and podcast Good Food and expert on Italian cuisine. Go to the store and buy every box of pasta of a different shape you can. Bring them all home and look at the however, 50 boxes, 60 boxes. Evan says, try all the shapes you can find and look for patterns. Do you like ridges or do you like things to be, as they say in Italian, lisce, you know, smooth? No, I don't like smooth. Who wants smooth? You need maximum surface area. You need high surface area to volume ratio for both sauceability and tooth sinkability. So see, you already know a lot of what you like. It's true. I got a lot of opinions about pasta, but I've never really brought them all together in a methodical, scientific way. I need to isolate variables. I need to catalog attributes, ruffles and ridges, tubes and curls, long and short. Then I think I have to talk to more experts to find creative new approaches to inspire my design. And then I need to figure out how to actually get this shape made. Okay, that may be getting ahead of myself. First, Evan's assignment. Eat a bunch of pasta shapes and ask myself this. Which ones do I like? So, Ron, my friend and neighbor, can you introduce yourself, please? Hi, my name is Ron Fan, friend and neighbor of Dan Pashman. <laughs> um, also, uh, stay-at-home dad slash chef. You are a professionally trained chef. Last time I checked, I was a professionally trained chef. You went to culinary school. I did go to culinary school. You have cooked in impressive restaurants in New York City. Impressive enough. (laughs) (laughs) Impressive enough for this podcast. Yes. (laughs) It's summer 2019. Ron and I stand in my kitchen next to a pile of pasta boxes and bags. And I have to try them all, you know, for research. As I do, I'll be judging them by the three criteria I've come up with for evaluating all pasta shapes. Say it with me. Forkability. 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 How easy is it to get the pasta on the fork and keep it there? Sauceability. 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 How well does sauce adhere? And the most important of all, tooth sinkability. Tooth sinkability. Tooth sinkability. How satisfying is it to sink your teeth into it? Now, I want to be scientific about this process, so I need each pasta to be cooked the same, with the same ratio of salt to water, so I'm only evaluating based on shape. That's where Ron comes in. He brings a scale to weigh the salt and a professional-grade two-gallon plastic measuring vessel. A big cambro here. I 
bring the pasta. So here's what we got here. Let's just... Uh, we have Pappardelle, which is the wide flat one. That's a classic. Love that one. We have Mafalda. Yes. Mafalda. It's sort of like if you imagine a, a flat noodle like fettuccine, but with ruffles added along yeah. the side. The list goes on and on. Luciate. This one is called Vesuvio. This one's called Trumpets. It looks it's shaped sort of like a bugle. I went to specialty stores all over the New York area to find obscure shapes. I even had my parents bring me back some from their trip to Italy. Creste di Gallo. This one looks like a, a large elbow macaroni, yeah. but around the perimeter, there's a ruffle edge attached to it, which to me is reminiscent of the back of a stegosaurus. Maybe it's the rooster, the gallo. Is there a rooster? Oh, yes, right. The, yeah, it's 100%. It's the, the ruffle looks yep. like, um, it looks exactly like that. You're right. Now it's time to cook. Water going into the pan. Dan, this is such a weird test. Why? It just seems so arbitrary. What, what, are, you, what are you doing this for? I'm, I want to invent a new pasta shape. Is that what it is? You're inventing a new pasta shape? Did I not tell you that? No. I really buried the lead. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's see this. This new shape. I feel like I'm part of something important now. You are? <laughs> yeah. Now you're excited, Ron? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Bring it on. We'll come back to the test kitchen, a.k.a. my kitchen, in a bit. But first... Since I started on this journey, everyone from my boss to my wife, Janie, to the people at the pasta lab in North Dakota have told me this whole project is a mistake. There are no new shapes to be created. The pasta historian Maureen Fant, she flat out said she would not encourage anyone to invent a new pasta shape. But I just don't feel like these people are thinking outside the box. I need help from someone who approaches pasta from a non-traditional perspective. Someone who can help me think about things a little differently. Yes, Georges, I am an architect and an academic. George has an architecture office in London, and he teaches at Harvard. Most important for our purposes, he wrote a book called Pasta by Design, in which he analyzes pasta shapes through the lens of design and architecture. Each page has a different shape, rendered like an architectural drawing, with complex math equations that describe it. In other words, he's not a chef, or a historian, or even Italian. He's an outsider in the world of pasta, just like me. First off, I asked George to tell me his favorite pasta shape. And I like fusilli, for instance, because they're, they're quite thick. Cook them with a reduced white wine, some cream. Oof, a rough start. As I tell George, fusilli's spiral shape cooks unevenly. The edges are soft and the center strip is hard. It's true that it's being thicker. Uh, it does tend to cook with different rates. But you see, I like pasta al dente anyway, so I would hope that the core is a little bit crunchy. A little textural variation can be great, but crunchy? I'm starting to doubt Georges' credibility. But then he saves himself. I don't like the angel hair, the very thin ones. Okay, we agree on our hatred of angel hair. We can proceed. We get to talking about the design of my shape. In particular, about how to maximize sauceability. It's all physics. The more, let's say, indented or crenellated or um, the least smooth it is, the more likely it is to both hold uh, the sauce and possibly retain it. Aha! Just what I told Evan earlier. Now confirmed by science. What do you think the world of pasta needs? What's missing? Nobody knows. No one knows because the canon of pasta is open. In other words, no one knows what the full set of options are. We keep discovering 
new shapes and new experiences. So it's 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 a great thing to approach in a with a slightly modernist mindset, with a look for for simplicity and cleanliness, and and building up on on what is effectively already there. I I, I feel like. There's one approach in designing a new shape, which would just be like, let me think of the most different, radical, out there concept. Blow people's minds. Show them something they've never seen before. The problem with that is that, I mean, first of all, there is some wisdom in the current pasta canon. And the other thing is that pasta is a comfort food. If you create a new pasta shape that is so weird and different, that it doesn't feel at all familiar to people, I don't think it's going to be as satisfying. Yes, the the canon of pasta is um, quite unforgiving in that sense. Like, have you ever seen the pasta by Philippe Stark? Philippe Stark, he's like a famous design, very famous designer. I mean, is that right? Philippe Stark is the most famous designer in the world. Okay, well, that's why you're the design expert, all right? (laughs) And you're the pasta, man. (laughs) Georges explains that years ago, Philippe Stark invented a pasta shape. I Google it while we're talking. It's a short tube where the inside, rather than being hollow, has a single wave across the center. So that when you look into the tube, the cross section is almost like a yin-yang or like the Pepsi logo. I had never heard of this pasta. So you see, this is a celebrity pasta. And my point is that celebrity pastas haven't caught on. Yeah, this shape looks like an overly elaborate gimmick. And I don't want to make a gimmick. But there is one aspect of Stark's shape that catches my attention. These two mini tubes that he's stuck on the outside of the main tube, one on each side. Stark calls these the wings. They look like two short bucatinis. With these little wings, Stark has essentially fused two pasta shapes together. I make a note of that concept. From there, my conversation with Georges gets even more philosophical. He starts talking about the design of all kinds of everyday objects. Look around you, just pretty much everything is angular, straight, flat. Your computer, your desk, your chairs, your books. Angular, straight, flat is what we're used to. And? You know, after a few hundred years, a matter of taste. I mean, we are all now accustomed to, you know, working on flat floors, for instance, you know, which... We don't have to take for granted, but we do it because it's convenient and and proven, if you like. Wait, Um, you're saying we only walk on flat floors because it's convenient? Presumably, yes. And it's also a matter of taste. We have... A matter of... Who wants to walk on slanted floors all the time? That seems like just bad, bad planning, bad design. It's not as ergonomic, um, but of course (laughs) you can just... Reflect on that. There was a society um, for the amateurs of flat floors, and they created an installation at the Architectural Association here in London, uh, where they just created an oblique floor on which people could walk and somehow reflect on the differences. George admits he's exaggerating to make a point, but I get it. We take basic elements of design from flat floors to pasta shapes for granted. We get used to things the way they are, and after a while, we stop questioning it. For instance, George points out, even though the world we live in is angular, the pasta world is almost all round, flat, and blobby. And there's a very simple litmus test that you can make. Um, Have a look in the canon uh, for a pasta that has a right angle. He's right. I can't think of a single shape where two walls of the shape join at a right angle. The closest thing George has found is another one of his favorites, trenne. It's like penne, a short tube, but instead of being round, it's triangular, a triangular tube. So this is 
the only individual in the canon of pasta that I know of, the one that stands out because it is angular and plain. Does it have ridges on the outside? I don't think so. Well, they should add ridges. That would make it better. Anyway, so, George, to bring it back to your slanted floors and this idea that there are these design elements all around us that we take for granted, my main takeaway from this conversation is this. Sometimes a very small change to something that we consider very basic can make a huge difference. That's right. And so it may be that the pasta shape that the world needs, the pasta shape I want to create, does not involve going to the edge of the universe and back. It does not involve some incredible new technology. It just involves looking at the world of pasta a little bit differently. It just involves slanting the floor. Yes, absolutely. It's an open canon that's inviting, that's expanding, and the mutations of the existing uh, shapes are obviously a continuous process. Yes, they're continually improved at various stages of their existence. I'm sure, yeah, this is a really great way of looking at it. I like the idea of thinking about mutations. Maybe the name of my pasta will be the Mutantini. Yes, you may want to talk to your marketing people. (laughs) Okay, I'm feeling really good now. I think I understand my mission. I do need to break free from tradition, bring a new perspective. On the other hand, I want to keep the essential elements of pasta that we all love. I don't want to create the most extreme, outrageous shape just for the sake of it. I'm not interested in making some Instagram-ready sensation, the next cronut or rainbow bagel or black tap milkshake with all the candy pouring out and the piece of cake on top. You know what's better than a milkshake with a piece of cake on top? A milkshake with a piece of cake on the side. I don't want a gimmick. I want a legitimately great pasta shape that will stand the test of time. The other day, I was reading an article about Thomas Edison. You know, he didn't actually invent the light bulb. He just made it better. In fact, he didn't think of his work as inventing. He called it perfecting. That's what I want to do. I want to bring the best features of pasta together in a way that's never been done before. In a way that's just better. So really, I'm not inventing a new pasta shape. I'm perfecting one. Coming up, the perfecting begins, and I start to run into serious problems. Stick around. It's time to open up a can of advertisements. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Hey, after this episode, I hope you'll scroll through our feed and check out some of our other recent shows. Like last week, I tried to figure out if super premium vodka is actually any better. We even made our own bathtub vodka and sent it to a lab to see how it compares to Grey Goose. Before that, we talked with actor Kamel Nanjiani and his wife and creative partner Emily V. Gordon. We discussed Kamel's decision to radically change his diet and transform his body for a role. In that one, they opened up about their own struggles with body image issues. Like, if, if when I was 10 years old, if someone showed him that picture and was like, hey, someday it's going to be like, you're going to look like this for a small, small percentage of your life, I'd be thrilled. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, my God, great. He's got it all figured out. Well, he doesn't. Plus, Kamel and Emily discuss how they respond to people who worry that Kamel's new body means that he's changed. 
All those episodes are up now wherever you got this one. If you listen in Spotify, please click follow. In Apple Podcasts, subscribe. And Stitcher, favorite. Thanks. Now let's get back to my kitchen, where I'm with my friend, Chef Ron. We're joined by a crew of volunteer tasters. My wife, Janie, my kids, Becky and Emily, and Ron's son, Declan. The kids are all running around screaming. We've got pots heating on three burners at once. Ron has carefully measured the water. He's weighed the salt. We have an assembly line set up with a stack of bowls and forks. So as shapes come out of the pots, we can eat and evaluate, eat and evaluate. We'll try each pasta two ways, with just butter and Parmesan and with meat sauce. Looks like it's going to be a tough day at the office. What do you want to do first? You pick. You pick the first one. Oh, man. All right. You know what? This this one's easy. Let's just go with the, the papadel. Papadel, the, the wide, flat one. It's a classic. We get the papadel cooked up. All right. We're going to we're gonna taste these now. This is the first batch. Papadel with meat sauce, papadel with butter. I Becky, think... you going to try some too? Yeah. Yeah, you okay. go it's very hard to fork. Not very good forkability. <laughs> is that really a word? It is now. <laughs> so the papardelle, I love the tooth sinkability of it. When you have it with a meat sauce, it's, it, it requires a little extra work to get meat sauce in the bite, to get pieces of meat. Yeah. Now, I know that traditionally, papardelle is served with like a wild boar ragu with bigger chunks of meat. So you get the wide, flat pasta on your fork, then stab the meat. But I always find it's hard to nail your meat-to-pasta ratio and to get a manageable bite on the fork. It's good, but flawed. From there, the pace picks up. Every couple of minutes, another shape is ready for testing. And soon, we have piles of cooked pasta everywhere. We're standing around the kitchen island, just going from one shape to the next. Right, the whole thing is, the whole shape is sort of coiled. Not forkable at all. The shape just kind of looks fun. There is something about it that's appealing, though. So can we isolate, you know, use those elements in a different shape? My younger daughter, Emily, joins us now. Hello, Emily. Hello. Do you like, you want to eat some pasta with us? Yeah. Okay. Ron, try one of these. Tell us what you think. When you bite into it, it's kind of like a spring. Maybe it's for kids. <laughs> it's not as sauceable as, as, I, th- as, I, as yeah. I thought it might be. I want to talk into that. I'm feeling good about this testing. I feel like I'm isolating pasta qualities that I like, narrowing down options. And Janie, Ron, and I agree that one shape stands above the rest. Mafalda, also known as Mafaldina. This remains a fantastic shape. It's really good. I have had Mafalda before, but not for a while. Picture a long, flat noodle like fettuccine. But then along the edges, the whole length of the strip, there are ruffles. You can sort of think of it like lasagna, flat with ruffles on the edges, except much narrower, so you can twirl it on your fork. You get the two sinkability of a long pasta wrapped around a fork, but then the ruffles, having this many ruffles around the edges, adds so much just pleasing texture. It's so much more going on in your mouth when you eat it. I think I realize that I like a long pasta because it's kind of like playful. It reminds me of like your childhood when you're like twisting it on the fork. I kind of like the ruffles. It just kind of dances in your mouth a little bit. It's very nice. So I have reached two major decisions. First, I want a long shape. I think Janie's totally right that there's a nice nostalgia factor with long shapes. They're fun to eat. And when you get a big ball twirled around your fork, you get a very tooth sinkable bite. Also, almost every long shape is just long and round or long and flat. Not much variation. I think long shapes have more untapped potential. Second decision, I want ruffles. So really, I want the Mafalda to be my base canvas, and I'll build from there. 
I'd like to add ridges. I think I've made my preference for ridge shapes pretty clear. Those have more surface area, so they're more sauceable. So we have a Mafalda, long, flat pasta with ruffles along the edges, but instead of the center strip being flat, it has ridges. That's not the shape, but it's a start. Everything seems to be coming together. But before the test kitchen shuts down for the night, my nine-year-old, Becky, hits me with this. How are you actually going to advertise a new pasta shape and get lots of supermarkets to sell it? What if the supermarket people who, who choose like what the supermarket sells didn't even heard of you? I'm over here having philosophical discussions about slanted floors and then eating 10 pounds of pasta. But as Becky reminds me, that's the easy part. I want to actually get my pasta made. I want it to be real. In my months of research, I've learned that to make pasta, you need a dye. The dye is essentially the mold. It's the thing that turns the dough into the shape. Once I have a dye, I can bring it to a pasta company to get my shape produced. And to get that dye made, there's one person I gotta talk to. So in the fall of 2019, I reach out to Chris Maldari, who runs a company that makes pasta dyes. I invite him to our recording studio in Manhattan to chat. He says, if I wanna talk, I gotta come to him which for me involves a commuter train, a subway, a lift, and a boat. Because Chris lives on Staten Island, one of the most suburban and remote parts of New York City. Still, I would not be deterred. I set sail for Staten Island. Chris meets me at the door of his house. I used to be six foot eight, he tells me, but I'm getting shorter as I get older. I don't know, he still looks six foot eight to me. How'd you get into this? I was born into it. Chris runs D. Maldari and Sons been in his family since 1901, when his great-uncle, an Italian immigrant, started manufacturing pasta dyes. As I said, the dye is basically the mold for the shape. It's like, remember the Play-Doh factory? You push the Play-Doh through a hole that's shaped like a star, the dough comes out in a star shape. That piece of plastic with a star-shaped hole, that's the dye. Whatever shape the dye is, that's what the dough comes out like. Pasta dyes work the same way. But designing and manufacturing pasta dyes is a very specialized skill. Even most big pasta companies don't do it themselves. Maldari & Sons has been making pasta dyes for 120 years. Chris and his brother took over the company after their dad passed away. They worked on dyes that make all the classic shapes. But that's just the beginning. So like, you know, something like this, this is we've done, you can see it in the store, it's SpongeBob. I mean, really, you should know that. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I could tell it was SpongeBob. And you know who that is, right? Is that Lucy from uh, Peanuts? See, boy, this, he's, he's unbelievable. <laughs> now, what about that? I know what that is. You sure? Yeah. Okay. yeah that, that's like uh, not safe for work, as we would say. <laughs> okay. So you know what's funny about that is we had a, we had a company um, that wanted to make it. We couldn't find a manufacturer because they were afraid one of these slips in with a kid's, you know, SpongeBob mac and cheese. It's a problem. <laughs> so, yeah. Th th those are Anywho. In recent years, there's been a lot of consolidation in the pasta industry. In 2018, D. Maldari & Sons joined up with a company that had been one of their main competitors, Damari Pasta Dyes in northern Massachusetts. Together, they're now the go-to company for designing and manufacturing pasta dyes in America. The mac in the blue box of Kraft Mac and Cheese? They make the dye for that. The noodles in Campbell's Chicken Noodle Soup? Same. If you've eaten any dried pasta in the U.S., there's a very good chance it was extruded through one of Chris's dyes. So here's what I'm doing, Chris. I am setting out to invent a new pasta shape and to actually get it made and to actually sell it. Right. Okay. We, that's, that's what we do. Chris knows what kind of shapes might be possible, and he knows the industry. 
If I can get his approval on my concept, this will be a huge vote of confidence to producers that this whole idea is actually viable. So, as is my custom, I tell Chris about my three criteria for judging all pasta shapes. You know them by now. And Chris has some ideas for maximizing those attributes. If you want to get into sauceability, let's talk about the difference between pasta made through a dye that has Teflon coating and just brass. Years ago, dyes were made out of just brass or bronze because they didn't have the technology yet for, for Teflon. And the pasta, when you dry it, would come very rough and, and a darker color and the sauce sticks to it. As I tell Chris, I've seen extreme close-up photos of pasta made with a bronze dye, and the surface looks like sandpaper. That roughness makes it more tactile, stickier, so sauce adheres better. But Chris says creating that rough surface also creates dust, just like when you sand wood, which is fine in small batches, but the big industrial pasta makers can't handle that much pasta dust in their factories when they're making 10,000 pounds an hour. Their machines would clog. A Teflon dye, on the other hand, makes the pasta super smooth and yellow. That means sauce doesn't stick as well, but it also means no dust. And you can extrude dough through Teflon dyes faster, so you can make more pasta per hour. For these reasons, the big pasta companies that make the standard pastas at the supermarket, they almost all use Teflon dyes. But Chris says... If you went to Italy, they want the... The bronze the dye. Br the bronze dye. Absolutely. That's going to be more surface area. Sauce is going to adhere to it better. Right. I think I want my pasta to be made with a bronze dye. Now that that's decided, I tell Chris about my initial working concept for the shape. I tell him, look, it's just a starting point. He says, yeah, there's already lasagna with ruffles down the edges and ridges in the flat part. I pretend I already knew that. So he says, sure, all we got to do is make that lasagna shape, but narrow. It could be done. Um, it could be done. What do you think of it as a starting point, assuming that I'm going to add, you know, another twist or two? Um, I'm going to be honest because you seem like a nice guy and I don't want to send you off you know, to the abyss. Um, I don't think it would be enough to have people say, wow, look at that different pasta. You, you know, you'd really have to come up with something that is not even in the realm of, of having been done before. I hate to burst your bubble. That's not exactly what I wanted to hear. But like I said, the shape's still a work in progress. In terms of actually getting the thing made, what would I need to give you for you to be able to make that prototype? I mean, like, do I need to get, do I need blueprints? Do I need like 3D renderings? No, Can I describe it to you? Money. <laughs> Chris explains how it works. I give him a hand drawing. He'll turn it into a computer diagram. From there, he makes the die, which we can use to make some test pasta. Then he'll tweak the die as needed. He says if everything goes smoothly, it should cost about $5,000. Okay, I tell Chris, let's say we move forward. Then my plan is to take my die to a pasta company and partner with them to make it. I mean, I'm not going to start leasing a warehouse and buying equipment. I want the smallest initial run possible to control costs and minimize risk. If it takes off, we can always make more. Chris says he thinks the very least any company would make is 5,000 pounds. Dried pasta is usually sold by the pound, so that's 5,000 boxes. I tell Chris, I'm hoping the pasta company will cover the cost of making those 5,000 pounds. And of course, share in the profits if there are any. And that is where Chris says I have an issue. Here's the problem. The problem is that instead of having, you know, 40, 50, 60 family companies across the country, you know, maybe you have 10 
super factories. All these companies have been bought up and all, and all closed down, and now you have huge corporations that own those brands. Approach one of those companies with a new shape it's just not the thing that they do. Right. I guess I'm hoping to find like a mid-level company that will be small enough that they would want to partner and be excited about the possibility, but big enough that they can crank out some pastas. There aren't any. Chris says no company is going to want to partner on such a small run. There are places that'll make the pasta for me, but it'll be a white label situation. They make it, I put my label on it, and I have to pay the full cost of the production up front. I think what you have to do, and I don't mean I don't want to get all philosophical here, but you have to search the need to make a new pasta. Is it something you just always wanted to do, or is it a business move that you want to look to make money? Um, be honest. I want to like my own pasta shape. I if I'm not excited to eat it, then what the hell am I doing? And so first and foremost, I want it to be something that is fun, that is true to me, and that makes me happy to eat it, and that I can share with people. And if it doesn't end up becoming a massive business success, I'm okay with that. I, I, I would really like to not lose money when all is said and done. But if I can make something that I'm really happy with and share it with the people who are interested in sharing it and create a little enthusiasm, enough to pay back what it costs to get the shape made... I will consider that a success. And I can tell my grandkids about the pasta shape I invented. Okay. So I'm going to give you a beautiful analogy. All right. When I was, I guess, 15, 16, 17, it was the inception of the VHS. And I, I was just amazed by this thing that you could record and everything. So I really got into recording old sitcoms and then editing the commercials out. And from there, it you know, it grew a little bit. And I was in college and I wanted to uh, go to school to become a director. And I switched to NYU. And I was so overwhelmed by these people that knew so much more than I did that I chickened out, went back to the family business and switched back to Wagner College. So this has always been in me all these years. And I started five or six years ago, um, writing. I got an idea for a screenplay. And I can analogize this to your desire to come up with your own pasta shape. To me, finishing this screenplay, and of course my hope would be that, you know, somebody would buy it and, you know, I'd be going to a red carpet, you know, event. And and and, and it's to really just fulfill my, my need, my desire to, to do this. I'm kind of seeing you in the same thing, fulfilling your dream of making a pasta. The only problem is that in order to do it, there's a financial investment for you. So it's harder for you to fulfill your dream. And when you have two kids, it really is a tough one. Yeah. I'd probably say if you were looking, if your end goal was to get 5,000 boxes of dried pasta in your dream shape, right? Between all the experimentation and then getting it done, you're probably looking at 25 grand. It really never occurred to me that I'd have to lay out that kind of money. That night, after we put the kids to bed, my wife Janie and I sit together on the couch. So, I went today to meet this guy who makes 
the die is like the basically like the mold for a pasta shape. And he like wanted to be, be supportive, but he was just like poking holes in everything that I was saying. I'm just like feeling very discouraged. I feel like maybe this is stupid. So what did he think was the one like a one of the problems? I mean, number one, he thinks it has to be really, really different from anything anyone's seen. He he also he doesn't think that any pasta company is gonna want to partner with me to make it. So he estimated that if I don't get a, sh- a pasta company to partner with me on this, and I just have to pay for the production of the entire initial run out of pocket, that it would cost twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars total. And where is this money coming from? Our college, our kids' college savings. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think this is something that we should invest our own money in. Sure, you know, I I want you to do. You know, I think this is something exciting and passionate for you. But I guess, like, you know, we should talk to some more people who actually think, who who might know if this is something that is possible. This guy obviously doesn't think it's a great investment. I'm sitting there on the couch, and I'm not even sure I know exactly why I feel so down. It's just pasta, right? If you've listened to this show at all, you know I've always been someone with strong opinions about food. I've missed exits on the highway because I was thinking about the best way to dip a tortilla chip. People who've known me for a long time can't believe I've turned this annoying quirk into a career. But for all my opinions about food, I've never actually made anything. Sure, I mess around in my kitchen, but I've never had a chance to put my opinions about a food into practice and share it with the world to see if I'm right. This pasta project feels like the test of every food opinion I've ever had. Do I actually know what I'm talking about? But like, what if, you know, sometimes the things that that take off are just the thing where a person just like did what felt right to them and didn't make decisions based on trying to sell the thing. They didn't make decisions based on the market. They just like followed a vision and made something special. Like what if I just what if I just make the shape I've always wanted, like my perfect shape, and just follow that dream, and maybe people will respond to that. And then what if it sells a lot? Like what if it becomes a huge thing? Yeah, I mean that was that's the the ideal that's a we hope would happen. And if you had to invest five hundred dollars to see if that would happen, that would be great. But I mean, I don't think twenty thousand dollars is something we could do right now or ever (laughs) yeah next week in part three of Mission Impossible I attempt to pick myself up dust myself off and find a pasta company to help fund this project someone who's eager to partner with me If you want to work with somebody else, go work with them. That's totally fine. (laughs) I make my first trip to a pasta factory. It smells like pasta in here. And I keep refining my shape. Giving you some profanity, it looks like a cluster. Then later, a breakthrough. There's nothing like it. I gotta say, that was kind of cool to see 
Part three of Mission Impossible drops next week. Want to make sure you don't miss the rest of this series? Please connect with our show in your podcasting app. In Spotify, hit follow. In Apple Podcasts, subscribe. In Stitcher, favorite. You can do it right now while you're listening. Thank you. And if you want to see photos of me and Chef Ron testing pastas in my kitchen, along with a bunch of other highlights from this series, follow me on Instagram, at TheSporkful. I'm putting tons of Mission Impossible goodies up there. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer... Emma Morgenstern. And producers... Andre Sohero. And... Ngofen Putubwele. Our editor is... Tracy Samuelson. Additional editing and production by Peter Clowney, Daisy Rosario, Ann Sani, Gianna Palmer, Nora Ritchie, and Daphne Chen. This show is mixed by... Jared O'Connell. Theme music by... Andrea Christensdottir. With additional music help from Black Label Music. Special thanks to Marco Guarnieri, Helen Zaltzman, and Bill Nye. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Daisy Rosario. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. This is Jonzia Hutchings from Macon, Georgia, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Better.